0: good afternoon today we will be debating the topic did Jesus physically rise from the dead the two debaters are Shabir Ali and Dr. William Craig I'm just going to introduce both of those right now Mr. Ali is married with four children he has his BA in religious studies from Laurentian University he is also the president and founder of the Islamic information and Dawah Center Toronto he is mostly self-taught in comparative religion Dr. William Lane Craig is a research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology in La Murata, California. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife Jan and their two teenage children, Charity and John. At the age of 16, as a junior high in, in junior high school, he first heard the message of the Christian gospel and yielded his life to Christ. Dr. Craig possesses two doctorates, a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Birmingham in England and also a doctorate in theology from the University of Munich in Germany we would also like to express a thank you to uh, the hosting groups Campus Crusade for Christ here at the University of Toronto and the Islamic information at Dawaz Centre Toronto for hosting this event I would also like to thank our moderator today who will be Richard Davis And Richard Davis is a professor of philosophy at Tyndale College. He is also a professor of philosophy at the York University. He has received both his MA and PhD degrees in philosophy from the University of Toronto and has published a number of articles in academic philosophical journals. The flow of the afternoon will be as follows. The two sides will debate as explained by our moderator in just a moment, and this will be followed by a question-and-answer period. But before we begin this time, we'd like to call your attention to a comment card that is located on your seat, and uh, we would like to have an indicator of what you think of this uh, subject before the debate actually starts, and so if you would be able to right now take your comment card and fill out your opinion on this subject. At this time, I'm going to pass it off to our moderator, Richard Davis.
1: Thank you and welcome. Uh, The flow of the debate this afternoon will be as follows. Each of our speakers will uh, open up with an 18-minute introductory comment. This will be followed by 11 minutes from each of our speakers uh, rebutting and responding to the comments of the other speaker. Then we'll have counter rebuttals of seven minutes each and that will be followed by five-minute closing remarks uh... during the question and answer period i'll ask that uh... questions for dr craig that those persons would line up at the microphone in front of dr craig and questions for mr ali would line up at the microphone in front of mr ali and i'll give you more details about the question and answer period when we arrive i would also ask that you hold your applause or any expressions of appreciation for the points that the debaters are making until after they finish speaking and this will help them not to consume the time that they need to get their points out. So uh, without uh, further ado, I'll ask uh, Dr. Craig to come and present his opening uh, remarks for a period of 18 minutes. Dr. Craig.
2: Well, good afternoon. Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person who has ever lived. Twenty centuries after his death, he still continues to fascinate the minds of thinking men and women. But who was Jesus, really? I believe that the key to answering that question lies in the purported fact of his resurrection. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then he must have been who he claimed to be. And therefore we've come together this afternoon to discuss the question did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? now it's important for you to understand in our discussion that I'm not going to treat the New Testament as an inspired and therefore holy and inerrant book but rather simply as a collection of ordinary Greek documents coming down out of the first century I'm not interested therefore in the question of biblical inerrancy rather we're interested in determining what facts the New Testament documents credibly establish concerning Jesus' fate, and what is the best explanation of those facts. Accordingly, in this afternoon's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. Number one, the New Testament documents establish five facts concerning Jesus, his trial and crucifixion, his honorable burial, the discovery of his empty tomb, His post-mortem appearances and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. And number two, that the best explanation of these facts is that God raised Jesus from the dead. So let's look at that first contention together. I'm going to share with you five facts about the historical Jesus which are widely accepted by New Testament historians today. Fact number one. Jesus was tried and executed by crucifixion. According to the Gospels, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish high court on the charge of blasphemy and then delivered to the Romans for execution for treason, for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Not only are these facts multiply attested by independent biblical sources like Paul and the Acts of the Apostles, but they are also confirmed by extra-biblical sources. For example, from the Jewish historian Josephus and the Syrian writer Marabar Serapium, we learn that Jewish leaders made a formal accusation against Jesus and participated in events leading up to his crucifixion. From the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a, we learn that Jewish involvement in the trial was justified as a proper undertaking against a heretic. And from Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, we learn that Jesus was crucified by Roman authority under the sentence of Pontius Pilate. According to L.T. Johnson, a New Testament historian at Emory University, the support for the mode of his death, its agents, and perhaps its co-agents, is overwhelming. Jesus faced a trial before his death was condemned and executed by crucifixion. Perhaps the single most egregious error found in the Quran is its claim that Jesus was not in fact crucified. Not only is there not a single historical shred of evidence for this remarkable hypothesis, but the evidence supporting Jesus' crucifixion is, as Johnson says, overwhelming. No historian who is not already a committed Muslim, believes that the historical Jesus was not crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus is recognized even by the most radical critics, to quote one of them, Robert Funk, as one indisputable fact. Indeed, Paula Fredrickson, whose book From Jesus to Christ inspired the PBS television documentary by the same name, declares flatly the crucifixion is the single strongest fact we have about Jesus. Fact number two, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. This fact is highly significant because it means that the location of Jesus' tomb was known. New Testament historians have established the fact of Jesus' entombment on the basis of evidence such as the following. One, Jesus' burial is attested in the very old information handed on by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. In the 15th chapter, Paul writes, and I quote, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter then to the twelve. This old information handed on by Paul has been dated to within five years of the crucifixion of Jesus. The second clause refers to Jesus' burial. Comparison of this four-line formula with the Gospels on the one hand and the Acts of the Apostles on the other reveals that the second clause is a summary in outline form Of the story of Jesus' burial by Joseph in a tomb. Secondly, the burial story is part of very old source material used by Mark in writing his Gospel. Since Mark is the earliest of the Gospels, his source material goes back even closer to the events of Jesus' life, and thus we have very early independent attestation of the burial in both Mark and Paul. Third, as a member of the Jewish High Court that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. There was an understandable hostility in the early church toward the Jewish leaders who in Christian eyes had engineered a judicial murder of Jesus. And thus, according to the late New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, Jesus' burial by Joseph is very probable since a Christian fictional creation of a Jewish Sanhedrist who does what is right for Jesus is, and I quote, almost inexplicable, end quote. For these and other reasons, the majority of New Testament critics concur that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb. According to the late John A.T. Robinson of Cambridge University, the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest And best attested facts about Jesus. Fact number three, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Among the reasons which have led most scholars to this conclusion are the following. One, the old information transmitted by Paul implies the empty tomb. Paul's expression, he was buried, followed by the expression, and he was raised, implies an empty grave. A first century Jew could not have thought otherwise. The reference is being made here to Jesus empty tomb is again evident by comparing this four point outline with the gospel narratives and with the book of Acts. The third line is a summary of the empty tomb narrative. Thus, in Paul's information, we have extremely early evidence of the fact of the empty tomb. Second, the empty tomb story is also part of Mark's very old source material. Mark's source did not end with Jesus' burial, but rather with the empty tomb narrative, which is tied to the burial account verbally and grammatically. And thus, we have very early independent attestation of the fact of the empty tomb. Third, Mark's story is simple and lacks signs of legendary embellishment. In Mark's account, the women come to the tomb early Sunday morning and find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. They see an angelic figure who proclaims to them that Jesus is risen and will appear to them in Galilee. They then flee from the tomb in terror and silence. Now, to appreciate the simplicity of this account, one has only to compare it to the uh, accounts of, of the empty tomb in the forged, apocryphal gospels of the second century and beyond. They are colored by all sorts of apologetical and theological motifs, which are conspicuously absent from the account in the book of Mark. At the very most, the skeptical critic might only want to excise from Mark's account the angelic figure as an embellishment. And what remains is stark in its simplicity. Four, the tomb was probably discovered empty by women. In Jewish society, the testimony of women was regarded as so unreliable that they were not even permitted as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Now, in light of this fact, how remarkable it is that it is women who are the discoverers of Jesus' empty tomb. Any later legendary account would certainly have made male disciples like Peter and John to discover the empty tomb. The fact that it is women rather than men who are the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb is best explained by the fact that they were the discoverers of the empty tomb And the gospel writers faithfully record what for them was an awkward and embarrassing fact. Fifth, the earliest Jewish response presupposes the empty tomb. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, we find the earliest Jewish response to the disciples' proclamation of the resurrection. Now what were Jews saying in response to the disciples' proclamation? He is risen from the dead. That these men are full of new wine? That his body is still lay in the tomb in the hillside? No. They said the disciples came and stole away his body. Now think about that for a second. The disciples came and stole away his body. The earliest Jewish response to the proclamation of the resurrection was itself an attempt to explain why the body was missing. And thus we have evidence for the empty tomb from the very opponents of the early Christian movement. Now I could go on, but I think enough has been said to indicate why in the words of Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist on the resurrection, and I quote, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb, end quote. Fact number four, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. This is a fact which is virtually universally acknowledged among New Testament scholars for the following reasons. One, the list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances which is quoted by Paul guarantees that such appearances occurred the old formula quoted by Paul goes on to say then he appeared to Peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me Given the early date of this information, as well as Paul's personal acquaintance with several of the people involved, such appearances cannot be dismissed as legendary, but must refer to actual events. Secondly, the appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestation of the appearances. For example, the appearance to Peter is attested by Luke and Paul. The appearance to the Twelve is attested by Luke, John, and Paul. The appearance to the women is attested by Matthew and John. And appearances in Galilee are attested by Mark, Matthew, and John. The appearance narratives uh, span such a breadth of independent sources that it cannot be reasonably denied that the earliest disciples did have such experiences. Even the skeptical German New Testament critic, Geralt Ludemann, therefore concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. And finally, fact number five. The original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead, and Jewish messianic expectations included no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies would be shamefully executed as a criminal. As Shabir Ali himself is wont to put it, for a Jew, the idea of a crucified Messiah is as inconceivable as a married bachelor. Second, according to Old Testament law, Jesus' execution exposed him as a heretic, a man literally accursed by God. And thirdly, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead prior to the general resurrection after the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson states, some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. In summary, then, there are five facts agreed upon by the majority of scholars who have written on this subject. Jesus' trial and crucifixion, his burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief and thus the majority of scholars would agree with my first contention. But that leads to my second basic contention, that the best explanation of these facts is that God raised Jesus from the dead. In his book, Justifying Historical Descriptions, historian C.B. McCullough lists six tests which historians use in determining what is the best explanation for given historical facts. These include explanatory scope, explanatory power, plausibility, not being ad hoc or contrived, being in accord with accepted beliefs, and outstripping any rival theories in meeting conditions one to five. The hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead, passes all of these tests. It explains why the tomb was found empty, why the disciples saw post-mortem appearances of Jesus, and why the Christian faith came into being. Moreover, it far outstrips any alternative naturalistic hypotheses. Down through history, various alternative explanations of these five facts have been offered. For example, the conspiracy theory, the apparent death theory, the hallucination theory, and so forth. Such hypotheses have been almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. No naturalistic hypothesis has attracted a great number of scholars. In conclusion, then, given these facts and the admitted failure of all naturalistic explanations, the rational man can now hardly be blamed if he concludes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle has occurred.
1: Thank you, Dr. Craig. I would now like to invite Mr. Ali to offer his opening comments for a period of 18 minutes. Mr. Ali.
3: Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, Dr. Craig. Hello, everyone. I begin by praising God and asking to send uh, peace and blessings on all of his prophets and messengers. I'm delighted to be on this uh, platform with Dr. Craig, whom I respect as a very... uh, eligible scholar of the Christian faith, and uh, I'm very happy that God has brought us together to try and understand something about the miracle that he performed involving his prophet Jesus. After September 11th, I have lost uh, much of my vigor for having debates. I feel that we need to understand uh, other faiths uh, much more than we ever have had the need to. But uh, nevertheless, there is still some interest in scholarly and academic debates, and uh, debates are are one of the ways in uh, which uh, we can explore our faith and we can be stimulated to learn even more. So in that spirit of uh, understanding and academic uh, study, I would like to proceed then with my comments on the case that Dr. Craig has uh, proposed. Dr. Craig's conclusion is a very modest one. He concludes that it is rational for a person to believe that on that Easter a divine miracle has occurred according to the law that God had given in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. Now if Jesus had really died as a blasphemer, and that's all we know now, we cannot first assume that he resurrected from the dead, now we must ask, would God have any interest in raising this blasphemer from the dead? Recall I'm not saying that Jesus is a blasphemer, I believe that Jesus is a noble prophet and a righteous person. But if we follow Dr. Craig's argument, it seems to me that we must conclude up to this point that Jesus died the death of a blasphemer, and hence God would have no interest in vindicating his blasphemy by raising him from the dead. And hence, we must say that this uh, conclusion is entirely flawed. Now notice that Dr. Craig has listed six um, criteria from Makulag Uh, regarding how we should evaluate a a historical hypothesis. But it seems to me that Dr. Craig has uh, skipped the first criterion and he has reduced the seven to six. If we look at his essay in Jesus Under Fire, McCulloch has given us actually seven hypotheses, seven criteria rather, for evaluating a hypothesis. And the first criterion, in fact, is the criterion that I feel that Dr. Craig's hypothesis fails upon. Because notice that according to biblical scholars, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the first part of a two-part link. The second part has to be the parousia, or the second coming, or the presence of Jesus, his return. In glory, at which time he will resurrect or he will raise up Christian believers along with him. In fact, the early New Testament writers had the belief that Jesus would reappear in their lifetime and do this. And since that did not occur, the belief in his resurrection has become strained for modern Christian scholars. So I think based on that first criterion from McCulloch, uh, the resurrection hypothesis is not a good one. Is it really true that the resurrection hypothesis has outstripped all of the naturalistic hypotheses? I do not believe so. Once we understand the presuppositions that Dr. Craig brings to this debate, we see that in fact the other hypotheses as naturalistic explanations do fare better. Recall that Dr. Craig is not treating the Bible as an inspired book. Recall that he accepts that Mark is the first of the four Gospels and the earliest of them. Recall that he relies on the understanding of the information that Paul would have relied upon, or rather that Mark would have relied upon, a pre-Markan gospel. Once we understand these critical apparatuses that modern scholars work with, some other hypotheses are in fact better. Let me explain another reason why. Dr. Craig takes all of these facts, as he lists, in isolation. But what a modern scholar has to do is to try and put the facts together in a sequential narrative and to try and find out what is the best reconstruction of the events altogether involving the five facts. What Dr. Craig has done is to go to some scholars for one fact and some other scholars for another fact, put them all together to say that he has five facts that are acceptable to all scholars, but this in fact is not the case. Take the hallucination hypothesis, for example. In order to argue for the the falsity of the hallucination hypothesis, Dr. Craig tells us that the uh, the early disciples of Jesus could not have hallucinated this belief. They could not have thought that Jesus was appearing to them from the dead because they had every reason to not accept this belief. Here is Dr. Craig's fact number four. However, notice that there is at least a certain strain that is accepted among evangelical scholars of interpreting Isaiah 52-53 as referring to a dying Messiah. And so as Dr. Craig Blomberg has pointed out, once we accept that, Dr. Craig's point number five is in fact weakened. Notice also that Dr. Craig says that there was no idea of a dying or at, of, of a rising uh, messiah, and it was inconceivable that a messiah could rise out from, dead, from the dead and leaving his body behind. But in fact, and Raymond Brown has told us exactly this. He has told us in fact in his book entitled uh, An Introduction to New Testament Christology, that. We should, after he's listed the evidence, therefore we should be careful about assumptions that Jesus showed no expectant knowledge of anything other than a resurrection of the dead which was to come at the end of time. And then he lists in his footnote other scholars who have shown that this belief about the immortality of the soul was in fact present in Jewish circles as well. That's an introduction to New Testament Christology, page number 42, Dr. Raymond Brown. So, the idea that the disciples could not have originated faith in Jesus is, I think, severely challenged. Let me explain some more why this is so. Recall that if we are to accept the New Testament, in general, without asking that every detail be true, we must come away with the impression that Jesus left such a remarkable impression on his followers that they would continue to believe in him even if he was unjustifiably crucified by opponents. Notice that large crowds had gathered around and followed Jesus. In fact, the crowds were so large that even though people were coming and going, at one time he was able to feed 5,000 of them with just a few loaves and few fish. At one time, a paralytic was brought to him, but they couldn't get through to Jesus because the crowds were around him. They had to eventually remove the roof to put that paralytic down and have Jesus heal him. Jesus' fame was so widespread that it is inconceivable, if we accept the New Testament in general, to think that the disciples would have given up faith in Jesus just because some ignorant fools grabbed him and crucified him for no uh, righteous cause. So we should uh, understand that the disciples of Jesus would have continued their faith in Jesus. Notice also that there were three conceptions of what a Messiah could be. In the New Jerome Biblical Commentary on page 1323, we read that according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jews had expected three messiahs. They could be a Davidic messiah, they could be a prophet messiah, and they could be an Aaronic priestly messiah. What has happened in the New Testament now that we read, is that all of these three messianic expectations are combined in the one single Jesus. So that when we read the New Testament, we come away with the impression that Jesus claimed to be the Davidic messiah, or at least that he accepted that claim about him. However, What the disciples concluded apparently after the crucifixion was that Jesus was the prophet messiah, though not the Davidic messiah. Had he been the Davidic messiah, he couldn't be killed. And if he was killed, he couldn't be the Davidic messiah. And uh, Dr. Craig is right. The Davidic Messiah to be killed would be like a married bachelor, there is no such thing. So they would definitely conclude that Jesus is not the Davidic Messiah, but they could continue to proclaim, as they did in Luke chapter 24 verse 19, that Jesus was a mighty prophet. And so there is no reason to think that it was necessary for the believers in Jesus to first see Jesus resurrected from the dead in order for them to have faith. Let's look at uh, Dr. Krebs fourth uh, point. Did Jesus really appear a multiple of times? If we read the reappearance narratives in the Gospels to find this out for ourselves, we will see that we can hardly have confidence in these narratives because one contradicts the other one. H.J. Richards, in his book, The First Easter, What Happened, tells us that many scholars have racked their brains to try and put these narratives together in a consistent and coherent whole. But uh, they have all failed miserably. And he thinks, in fact, that if anyone tries to dovetail them into some way, by omitting some facts and pretending that they all fit together, that attempt would be clumsy and, in fact, dishonest as well. Dr. Raymond Brown, whom Dr. Craig describes as one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our time, points out in his commentary on John's Gospel and also in his other writings, how these reports are to be finally reconciled. And he thinks that the only way we can do this is to realize that in a certain way, as far as substance is concerned, all of the Gospels are narrating the same appearance to the twelve. Raymond Brown thinks that there was just simply one appearance, and over time, in various communities, that story of the appearance was uh, repeated and evolved in various communities to take on local characteristics and uh, to preserve the memory of Jesus appearing to a certain particular figure. So some communities said that Jesus appeared to James, and some said that Jesus appeared to Peter, but in fact, they're all relating the same appearance. But at the core, there are some severe problems to deal with. For example, where did Jesus really appear? Did he appear in Galilee or in Jerusalem? If he appeared in, in Galilee, then it is difficult to see how the Jerusalem appearances would fit in. Because in Luke's Gospel and in the Acts, we are told that when Jesus appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem, he specifically told them to stay in the city until they received the power from on high. And we know that that occurred at Pentecost. So in other words, if Jesus appeared to His disciples in Jerusalem first, it would be impossible to fit in the Galilee appearance. And if He appeared in Galilee, somewhere in between, it is difficult to understand from Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, why when the disciples saw Jesus, they in fact doubted that they saw Him. So altogether, there are contradictions in these reports that uh, should have us repo- re, uh, reduce them to a single appearance. But what kind of reappearance was it? Was it the kind of an appearance that we could test historically? Dr. Craig quoted Bert Ludemann, and I'm surprised he did this, because Ludemann actually holds that these were, as Dr. Craig himself refers to, hallucinations that the disciples experienced. So we cannot quote him to prove the validity of the historicity of the appearance to the disciples. Let's look at the empty tomb narratives. Is that really truly acceptable to all scholars, that it is really uh, historical? It is not so, although more scholars have tended to accept the empty tomb as a fact. But Dr. Craig thinks that Mark's narrative of this lacks le- uh, legendary development. That, to me, is not entirely acceptable to modern scholars. Dr. Craig refers to Michael Grant as a professional historian. But Michael Grant himself throws doubt on this particular question of the historicity uh, of the angels at, at the tomb that is described by Mark. Even uh, Wilfred Pannenberg, a scholar that Dr. Craig relies on heavily, uh, talks about uh, the lack of historicity in the part of uh, Mark's narrative there, chapter 16, verse number 7. So we cannot say that the tomb was necessarily historical, though I personally would be willing to accept for a a reconstruction of the events that the tomb was found to be empty. Let us look at uh, his fact number two that his uh, burial was at a location that was known. Now again, if we accept that the empty tomb, narr- tomb narrative is correct, then we would tend to accept that the burial narrative is also basically correct, but not necessarily the case. And this is where we see that Dr. Craig has pulled together loose facts and tried to bring them into a whole. It is possible that the women did go to the wrong tomb. And to prove that they did not, Dr. Craig has to prove that it is historically certain that the women witnessed the correct burial place of Jesus and that he has not done. But Dr. Craig is relying on us to bring together all our background knowledge about the New Testament and to include even what he would call legendary developments into our perception of the five pillars that he has set up. But we cannot do that unless we prove all of the connecting links between the five pillars. What about his trial and execution? Does the Quran deny that Jesus was crucified? I do not believe so. I believe that the Quran denies the crucifixion only if we understand the crucifixion to mean death by crucifixion. But crucifixion is a tricky word. And if we understand crucifixion as is defined in Tafsir quran by Abdul-Majid Dariabadi, as death by crucifixion, then what the Quran is in fact denying is that the Jews had killed Jesus by crucifixion. But if I'm to propose a quick reconstruction of the events then, I will say that uh, if we accept the empty tomb as historical, and the burial, and the the trial and execution, three of Dr. Craig's facts, then if we stick with Mark's bare narrative, then if if a theological hypothesis that is more plausible, I think, and has more explanatory scope than Dr. Craig's hypothesis, when we take now everything we have discussed in this lecture, is that Jesus was tried, he was executed uh, by crucifixion but not killed, though he appeared to be dead and from the tomb God raised him up to heaven and hence his tomb was later on found empty. I think this hypothesis uh, takes into consideration uh, that the the reappearance narratives we have are late and legendary developments. It relies on the earliest source materials that we have in Mark and in Paul's uh, recollection and in other uh, reports, and so altogether we are, by having this hypothesis, we are still sticking to theology, we can still conclude that a mi- remarkable miracle happened, that God rescued Jesus from the plots of his enemies. They couldn't kill him, though he appeared to have died on the cross, but he recovered, Or that God raised him into recovery, into the high heavens, where he resides, and from which place God will send him back into the world a second time. So both uh, Dr. Craig's hypothesis and mine are theological hypotheses. I say finally, that this is a mystery. The miracle that God performed here cannot be fully found. And any hypothesis we propose is only a temporary or tentative hypothesis. But we should regard the miracle from God as a mystery that God will make known to us in due time. In the meantime, I conclude that Dr. Craig's case for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is severely flawed for all the reasons I have put forward, and the hypothesis that God rescued Jesus from the thought of his enemies and raised him to, dead, to, to heaven alive is a better hypothesis. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Ali. We're now going to uh, segue into the rebuttal section of the debate, where each debater will have an opportunity to rebut or respond to the comments of the other debater. And so I'll invite Dr. Craig to uh, offer his rebuttal for a period of 11 minutes. Dr. Craig.
2: Well, I thank Shabir for that remarkable response to uh, my case for the resurrection of Jesus. I must say, In many of the things he said, uh, I was quite surprised. You'll recall that I said first I would defend five facts that are agreed upon by the majority of New Testament scholars today. And I want to emphasize that I'm not playing pick and choose as... Shabir suggested. These are five facts which the majority of scholars, whether liberal, conservative, or or radical, uh, have agreed upon with respect to the historical Jesus. The first one, the crucifixion, is universally agreed upon by all historians. And here Shabir says that he doesn't deny that Jesus was crucified, but what he suggests is that he was taken down alive from the cross and then God raised him out of the tomb into heaven. This is a fantastic uh, hypothesis and an incredible uh, concession on the part of an Islamic theologian to uh, Christian uh, claims about Jesus. Basically, it's an attempt to resurrect the old apparent death theory, which was popular among German rationalists during the late 1700s. And I've got to say, no historian or New Testament scholar would defend this apparent death theory today. It's sort of the theological equivalent of the flat earth theory. Well, why is this hypothesis abandoned? Well, one thing is that there is simply no doubt that the crucifixion was fatal. The Romans were professional executioners, and they ensured the death of their victims by a spear thrust into the heart of the victim so that even if the victim had simply lapsed into a comatose state on the cross, he would be certainly killed by the thrust of the spear through his heart, and this is exactly what happened in Jesus' case. There was an article a few years ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association on the death of Jesus which uh, explained that Jesus probably died of hypothalamic shock so that he was already dead even before the spear thrust into his heart. So this Hypothesis on Shabir's part is simply fantastic. Moreover, the idea that God then raised Jesus uh, alive from the tomb into heaven is a totally ad hoc hypothesis. There's absolutely no evidence for such a thing. It is completely ad hoc or contrived. So I don't think we've had any good reason to, to deny in today's uh, discussion that Jesus was crucified and that he was executed. He died by crucifixion. And that leads to the second point, that he was then buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Now, as far as I could see, Shabir did not dispute this point. Remember, I looked at the early testimony to the burial from Paul's information, from Mark's source, which gives independent confirmation of it, and I argued also for the historicity of Joseph of Arimathea, and Shabir appears to agree with all of those facts that uh, Jesus, in fact, was interred in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea after his crucifixion. Thirdly, I then suggested that the tomb was found empty, and I gave five lines of evidence for the empty tomb. Paul's early information, Mark's early source, the simplicity of the account, the women witnesses, and the Jewish response to the proclamation of the resurrection. In response, all Shabir says is, that Michael Grant, whom I quote in my written published work, denies the fact of the angel at the tomb. Fine. I, I said that most the historical critical scholar might want to say, well, the angel is a- an embellishment. And what that leads you is a very simple, stark account that shows no traces of being a legendary account or an embellishment. This is what Michael Grant says in his book, A Historian's Review of the Gospels. He says, the discovery of the empty tomb is differently described by the various gospels. But if we apply the same sort of criteria that would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. And the majority of New Testament critics would agree with Grant's verdict in that regard. Shabir then makes, Another remarkable suggestion, that maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, again, this was a theory proposed by Kearseup Blake back in 1905 that fell stillborn from the author's pen. Nobody, or virtually nobody, accepted this hypothesis, that the, the whole thing was a huge mistake because the women went to the wrong tomb. Why? Well, one fatal objection to the theory is simply this. Even if the women had been so confused they went to the wrong tomb, The Jewish authorities couldn't have been guilty of any such oversight. The minute the disciples began to proclaim in Jerusalem, he is risen from the dead, all the Jewish authorities had to do was to point to the correct tomb where Joseph had put the body of Jesus, maybe even exhumed the body and paraded through the streets of Jerusalem for all to see that he wasn't risen from the dead. But they didn't do it. Instead, the Jewish leadership responded, the disciples came and stole away his body. Even the Jewish polemic against the early Christian movement shows that they didn't know where the body was. So the wrong tune theory, I think, is simply uh, vacuous, uh, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> Number four, I talked about the appearances of Jesus. Paul's information gives us uh, grounds alone for affirming the historicity of these appearances. And then they are multiple and independently attested in the Gospels. Shabir says, but these uh, narratives cannot be put together without contradiction. I I disagree with that entirely. It's easy to put them together. Jesus appeared, first of all, to the women, then to the Emmaus disciples, then to the twelve in the upper room, then a week later to the twelve with Thomas in the upper room as they remained in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed Passover. Then they went back, as is the normal custom with Pilgrimages uh, to Jerusalem, back went back to Galilee. There they experienced the Galilean appearances, and then they returned to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and there they experienced Jesus again, such as is described in Acts chapter one. So there's simply no contradiction. But really, that's all beside the point, because my core fact wasn't relying upon getting rid of the contradictions between the narratives. My point was that these appearance stories span such a breadth of sources that you cannot deny that they did have such experiences of Jesus, even if you can't establish the historicity of any particular story. As Wolfgang Trilling, the German New Testament scholar, says, the totality of the appearance reports permits no reasonable doubt that Jesus, in fact, bore witness to himself in such a way. And I think Shabir is simply mistaken when he says that Brown says there was only one appearance. There was only one appearance to the twelve, perhaps, but Brown doesn't deny the appearance to uh, Peter or to the other persons that are listed in 1 Corinthians 15. So we have good grounds, I think, for believing uh, that Jesus did manifest himself in this way. Fifth, the origin of the disciples' beliefs. We saw there was no Messianic expectation of, a, of an executed Messiah, that the Old Testament law would show Jesus to be a curse by cru- being crucified, and there was no belief in a resurrection until the end of the world. And yet the disciples came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. And the question is, how do you explain the origin of that belief? Shabir says, well, the disciples wouldn't give up belief in Jesus because Uh, They believed in him so strongly during his life they might have continued to believe that he was a prophet. Perhaps. But my point is they wouldn't have believed in his resurrection from the dead. The question I'm posing to you today is how do you explain that these disciples came to believe that Jesus was risen? That is a totally un-Jewish idea. As N.T. Wright, the British New Testament scholar, points out, Uh, with respect to other failed messianic movements. He says all of the followers of those first century messianic movements were fanatically committed to the cause. They, if anybody, might be expected to suffer from this 20th century disease called cognitive dissonance when their expectations failed to materialize. But he says in no case right across the century before Jesus and the century after him do we hear of any Jewish group saying that their executed leader had been raised from the dead and he really was the Messiah after all this was simply an un-Jewish idea if your Messiah didn't work out you either found another Messiah or you went home and that was it so that you've got to explain what in the world happened that transformed these disciples in such a way that they began to believe in the resurrection now Shabir says well maybe they read about the dying Messiah in Isaiah 53 Not without hindsight. Only once they had believed in the resurrection could they go back to the Old Testament and find anticipations of it. But nobody prior to the resurrection of Jesus could read Isaiah 53 or these other uh, statements and anticipate the idea of an executed Messiah, much less a rising Messiah. Shabir rightly points out that there was Jewish belief in the immortality of the soul, but that's irrelevant in tonight's debate. The question is, how do you explain the origin of the disciples' belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead? So those are the five facts. What's the best explanation? Well, I argue that it is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I've already disputed the wrong tomb theory and the apparent death theory that Shabir has offered. What about the hallucination theory? Well, the hallucination theory is problematically for several reasons. For one, the number and various uh, circumstances of the appearances preclude hallucinations. Too many individuals and groups were involved in order to simply write these off as hallucinatory. Secondly, the disciples weren't psychologically disposed to hallucinations. Uh, They had no expectation of seeing Jesus alive again. This can't be explained by wish fulfillment. Thirdly, hallucinations would never have led to belief in Jesus resurrection. At most it would have led them to proclaim his assumption into heaven, into Abraham's bosom, but not his resurrection from the dead. And finally, of course, hallucinations cannot explain the fact of the empty tomb. So I don't think that Shabir has been able to offer any better explanation than why uh, than, than the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. God's raising Jesus from the dead shows that, in fact, Jesus was not a blasphemer after all. Rather, his claims were true, and that God had therefore vindicated his claims in raising this man from the dead. If this man, who was executed as a blasphemer by the Jews, has been raised by the God of Israel, that means that the God of Israel has unmistakably uh, uh, attested those claims and confirmed them as being the truth. And therefore, I think that best explanation for what happened to Jesus is just what the disciples said God raised him from the dead
1: thank you Dr. Craig and now Mr. Ali your rebuttal for a period of 11 minutes please
3: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Craig, for your graceful response. And let's take issue again with Dr. Craig's second contention, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Notice that Dr. Craig has offered no proof for this contention. It is a supposition that God was involved, that God would want to be involved. But, if we are asking the question, did Jesus rise from the dead, we cannot start with the assumption that God rose from the dead. We have to start from the assumption we don't know what happened. Let's find out. Are there any theological reasons for thinking that God would want to raise this person from the dead? Well, let's find out what we know about him so far before deciding the question of the resurrection. All we know about him so far, the Dr. Craig has told us, is that Jesus died the death of a blasphemer according to God's own law. Now, what justification do we have for thinking on this theory that God would want to raise Jesus from the dead and thus vindicating his blasphemy? On the other hand, the Muslim claim that Jesus rescued, uh, or God rescued Jesus from the plot of his enemies, saved him and raised him up alive, It's a better hypothesis, because we do not start by considering Jesus to be a blasphemer. We start by considering him to be a noble prophet, a righteous man who taught the truth, who performed many miraculous signs. He was born of a virgin, he cured the leper, he healed the blind, he raised the dead back to life. Wherever he went, he inspired faith in people, and uh, God finally vindicated him by rescuing him from his enemies and raising him to himself. Now what about the the origin of, of this belief? Why would the disciples stop believing in Jesus? They had performed miracles in Jesus' name. The Gospels show us that they were driving out demons in the name of Jesus. And not only the disciples, but other people as well. So why would these people lose faith in Jesus? Especially since the crucifixion event itself, rather than telling people that Jesus is wrong, you shouldn't believe in Him, the crucifixion itself, according to the Gospels, inspired faith. Look at the Gospel of Mark, for example telling us that uh, at the moment of of death, Jesus uh, was seen by a, a Roman centurion as the Son of God. Luke has a variation of this telling us that the centurion said, Surely this man was righteous beyond doubt. And the multitudes went home beating their breasts. You have to imagine people going home saying, What have we done here to this man? So, the crucifixion event itself inspired faith if we are to believe in the Gospels. And this reminds me of a point, Dr. Craig is not just simply assuming that the New Testament is uh, a, a, a reliable set of documents, but in fact he is canceling our belief in the majority of the passages in the New Testament. I would like to see what really is left of the New Testament if we really proceed along the way Dr. Craig is going with this. Why wouldn't the disciples believe in Jesus? Recall that in Mark chapter 8, and then again in Mark chapter 9, and then again in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is said to have told His disciples that He's going up to Jerusalem, He will be arrested, He will be tried, He will be scourged, He will be spat upon, He will be crucified, and then on the third day He will rise again. Actually Mark it says after three days, He will rise back to life. And this reminds me of a point. Dr. Craig is not just simply assuming that the New Testament is uh, a, a, a reliable set of documents, but in fact he is canceling our belief in the majority of the passages in the New Testament. I would like to see what really is left of the New Testament if we really proceed along the way Dr. Craig is going with this. Why wouldn't the disciples believe in Jesus? Recall that in Mark chapter 8, and then again in Mark chapter 9. And then again in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is said to have told his disciples that he's going up to Jerusalem. He will be arrested. He will be tried. He will be scourged. He will be spat upon. He will be crucified. And then on the third day he will rise again. Actually Mark it says after three days he will rise back to life. Are we saying that all of these passages are non-historical? Recall also that according to the Gospel of Matthew. When the Jews went to Pilate to request that guards be placed at the tomb, they said that this blasphemer said that after three days he will rise. If the Jews knew it, why not the disciples of Jesus? Now, Dr. Craig may say that this passage is not historical. I would like to find out if this is so, and what else is not really historical in the Gospels? What would be left of the Gospels if we really follow this belief? Now, Isaiah 53, would they need to first experience the resurrection of Jesus before they went to Isaiah 53? That's possible. But as Craig Blomberg has pointed out, in fact, there was a strain of interpretation that considered Isaiah 53 as referring to the dying uh, Messiah. So as long as that strain was there, it is possible that the disciples considered, uh, wait a minute, Jesus, how could he be dead? Why should he be dead? Surely God raised this guy back to life. Look at all the people he raised back to life. Couldn't God raise him up back to life again? In fact, belief in the resurrection of persons was in fact so easy for people in that time that read in Mark chapter 6, uh, that uh, in verse number 14, King Herod heard about it for his fame had become widespread. And people were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why mighty powers are at work in him, that is in Jesus. Others were saying, he is Elijah. Still others, he is a prophet, like any of the prophets. But when Herod learned of it, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised up. Although Herod had beheaded John the Baptist, he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist now alive again performing miraculous works. And not only Herod, but the multitudes of people or at least many of the multitudes that come to believe this. Shows you how easy it was for people in that time to believe that somebody had resurrected from the dead. Now what about the appearances of Jesus? Did Did I misunderstand Raymond Brown? I don't think so. I've studied carefully what he has written in this book and I have the book here in which he is concluding that there was only one appearance that became many in the various narratives. And that uh, discussion has been expanded further in his second volume on his commentary on John's Gospel. So no, I did not misunderstand. Now, Dr. Craig thinks it is easy to reconcile the appearance narratives in the various Gospels, but you try it yourself and see how difficult it is. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to the twelve, but we know at that time there was no twelve, there were eleven. Luke tells us in chapter 24 that Jesus did appear to the eleven. But when we go to John's Gospel, we realize that the the appearance Luke is talking about is the one in which Thomas was absent, which means that there were only 10 maximum, not 11. And this shows you some of the difficulty. In fact, uh, Dr. Craig thinks that we can reconcile this by thinking that Jesus first appeared in Jerusalem, then the disciples went back to Galilee, and then finally came back to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and Jesus appeared to them again. But it is this particular sequence that Raymond Brown speaks about when he says that such a sequence does violence to the gospel evidence, here on page 168 of his uh, text, uh, an introduction to the New Testament. So no, the appearances cannot be reconciled so easily. There are some serious difficulties that cannot be overcome and the best uh, hypothesis that will explain this is to say that there was the idea that Jesus uh, had been raised up by God uh, victorious, he was vindicated by God and uh, that led to the belief that Jesus would appear or could appear and people began to see him. Now this could have been a vision that God had granted them. God might have allowed the spirit of Jesus to come and and appear to the disciples. All of this is possible. Dr. Craig thinks that my hypothesis is fantastic, but recall that we are both dealing with miracles. Either God miraculously resurrected Jesus from the dead, according to Dr. Craig's hypothesis, or that God raised Jesus alive into heaven and that he allowed the disciples to see Jesus in some way. Either this was a vision that the disciples saw without any objective reality on the other side, or that there was a the real and objective reality. I've already said before that what exactly happened is a mystery that we cannot penetrate. Now you might say, but what, what about my hypothesis? Recall that it is incumbent on the Christian apologist to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the Christian apologist starts with a Christ who has been condemned and who has been proved to be a blasphemer by the crucifixion itself. According to this uh, apology, Jesus by his crucifixion, regardless whether he was innocent or guilty in his trial, the crucifixion itself proves him to be a blasphemer and a false pretender and a false messiah. So now somebody has to start with this guilty Jesus and prove him true. On the other hand, I start with a, an innocent Jesus, and I say that my belief in this innocent Jesus survives the crucifixion. And even though I may not know what exactly happened to Jesus in the end, I'm confident that God rescued Jesus from the plot of his enemies and raised him to the dead. Notice that I was not interested in disputing the empty tomb, the burial, and the trial of Jesus. Although I've tried to show that in fact there are many assumptions that go into every one of these facts. What Dr. Craig actually calls facts has been pointed out by his colleagues Dr. Craig Blomberg and Robert Gundry as actually um, overstatements from the part of Dr. Craig. In fact these have to be pruned down as Robert Gundry would put it. And so there are facts. There are, in fact, uh, a number of points that Dr. Craig has arrived at as probabilities. So we say, yes, the tomb was empty if we take one, two, three, four, five probabilities together. And so we have the empty tomb as a probability. And all of these that Dr. Craig calls facts are, in fact, probabilities. This is why his conclusion is so modest. He's not saying that the only reasonable conclusion from this is that Jesus rose from the dead. He's saying that it is reasonable to believe that. But that means that it is also reasonable to believe in some other probability. What is the next best hypothesis here? And what are the odds for either this or that one? For Dr. Craig's hypothesis, what are the odds? Is it a 60-40? Is it more probably that Jesus rose from the dead or God raised him from the dead? Is it a 60 or is it a 70-30 or 80-20? We would like to know how probable is this in order for us to bet our life on this. Finally, my hypothesis is not ad hoc at all. It relies on the most ancient, reliable information that we have. When we go back to Mark's Gospel, we see that the bare narrative there only shows an empty tomb. And the most we can conclude from that is that God raised Jesus from the dead, not as a historical conclusion, but as a theological conclusion. And that theological conclusion, as far as I'm concerned, is not ad hoc. It relies on the power and the miracle from God. Could Jesus have survived crucifixion? I'm out of time now, but when I come back, I will talk about the crucifixion methods and how it might have been possible for Jesus to remain alive.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Ali. And now for a second round of rebuttals, uh, this time uh, at seven minutes each before our closing remarks. So a second rebuttal, please, Dr. Craig, for a period of seven minutes.
2: Well, I'm very gratified to see that we're seeing some genuine advance in this debate in terms of the argumentation. In his last speech, Shabir says that, in fact, he's not interested in disputing the facts of the crucifixion, the burial, uh, the empty tomb of Jesus, and I think quite rightly so because these are fairly firmly established historically. When he says that Gundry argues uh, that I have to be pruned back, uh, that I've made overstatements if... Uh, Shabir has a bad habit of quoting things out of context. If you read that book where this is said, Gundry has misunderstood my point, and I have to correct him on this because he thought I was talking about the later Gospels when, in fact, I was talking about Mark's Gospel, and Gundry agreed wholeheartedly with all four of the points that I was making. So uh, these are facts, I think, and especially the crucifixion of Jesus. I await with anticipation Shabir's demonstration of why it's more probable to think that Jesus, in fact, uh, survived crucifixion than that he was killed, uh, given the evidence we have that he experienced the spear thrust through his heart and that the professional executioners had already determined he was dead. Well, that brings us then to the appearances of uh, Jesus. And my point again here was not to try to establish the details of any single appearance, but to point out that the breadth of sources that are independent and attest to these are so early and so broad that these appearances surely did take place. And all Shabir could offer here was that there were minor contradictions in some saying it was to 12, another person saying it was to 11. Again, I think these are greatly exaggerated. When Paul says he appeared to the 12, Paul is using the word 12, as it were, with a capital letter, referring to a group. That's the title of a group. He's not trying to enumerate whether or not Thomas was there in the room with them. And so I really don't think it's a contradiction at all. But in any case, even if it were an inconsistency, these inconsistencies in the circumstantial secondary details do nothing to undermine the fundamental historical fact that I've enunciated that various individuals and groups did experience these appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Paul's information alone precludes that there was just one appearance. And that information from Paul, remember, goes back to within five years after the crucifixion and cannot be dismissed as legendary. I gave you the order in which the appearances occurred. I see no reason they couldn't have done so. This was suggested by C.F.D. Moule, professor of New Testament studies at Cambridge University, an eminent scholar, and I don't think it's ever been refuted. So we have good grounds to believe that the disciples did experience appearances of Jesus after his death. What about the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection? Here, Shabir says, well, perhaps the crucifixion itself inspired belief in him. At the most, it would have inspired belief in him as a Jewish martyr, like the Maccabean. Martyrs uh, during the intertestamental period, but would not have inspired belief in him as either Messiah or risen from the dead. Shabir said, but look, didn't Jesus predict his own resurrection? Well, now here he's playing scholarly pick and choose. You see, if you accept that the resurrection predictions of Jesus are historical then you've also got to accept the historicity of the appearances, the empty tomb, and all the rest. Because the appearances and empty tomb are better attested than these resurrection predictions. Most critical scholars think the resurrection predictions were written back in after the fact. So you can't play pick and choose in that way. If you want to admit the historicity of the predictions, then you've got to admit the historicity of the appearance narratives as well. As for Isaiah 53, referring to a dying Messiah, that was not uh, anticipated prior to the time of Christ, and I would simply challenge him to give me any source, any uh, pre-first century Jewish source, that interprets Isaiah 53 to mean a a Messiah who would be executed and who would die. There were certainly some anticipations that Messiah might suffer but then triumph, but there was no anticipation of a dying Messiah prior to Jesus. Shabir says, but John the Baptist was regarded by Herod as risen from the dead in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Not literally. Why? Because John and Jesus were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. They were both alive together. So literally, Jesus couldn't have been John the Baptist risen from the dead. Rather, as Martin Hengel, New Testament scholar from Tübingen points out, what is meant here by Herod is that Jesus is invested with the power and the the spirit of John the Baptist, uh, just as some said that Jesus was Elijah and so forth. It wasn't literal resurrection of the dead. The literal resurrection to glory and immortality didn't take place until the end of the world. So there's simply no historical antecedents for why the disciples would come to believe in Jesus' resurrection without uh, the resurrection itself. Finally, what is the best explanation of these facts? Well, Shabir says, that you're presupposing that, uh, that uh, God would want to be involved with Jesus of Nazareth, but why think that God would want to raise Jesus from the dead? Islam doesn't think that Jesus was a blasphemer, and therefore we can say that he was assumed into heaven. Well, this gets into a, a kind of a side area that I'll be debating Shabir on later on this week, namely who did Jesus claim to be? And just let me say very briefly, I think the evidence supports that Jesus did make these claims. For example, in his parables, he showed that he forgave sins. His table fellowship with sinners was a living parable of, of his forgiving sins. Royce Gordon Grumler, reflecting on this, says, Jesus is consciously speaking as the voice of God on matters that belong only to God. The evidence clearly leads us to affirm that Jesus implicitly claims to do what only God can do, to forgive sins. The religious authorities correctly understood his claim to divine authority to forgive sinners, But they interpreted his claims as blasphemous and sought his execution. So we have good historical grounds for believing Jesus made these claims. Now, if they were not true, they were blasphemous. But God's raising Jesus from the dead vindicates those claims and shows that he was not a blasphemer. He was who he claimed to be. The problem with the Islamic hypothesis is at least twofold. Number one, the rescue comes a little late I would say he allows Jesus to be crucified, taken down, and buried, and then he raises him. Everybody knows the traditional Islamic view is that Jesus was never crucified. And that's at least defensible. But this rescue operation, Shabir imagine, comes far too late to be theologically credible. Secondly, to make a, a theological point, what you've got to say on Shabir's analysis is that God misled the disciples. He misled them into thinking Jesus was risen from the dead. And so they went into Jerusalem. Christianity was founded on the belief that Jesus was risen from the dead when, in fact, that hadn't happened. And so theologically, I think Shabir's alternative explanation is unacceptable. The better theological explanation is the one the disciples gave. God raised Jesus from the dead.
1: Thank you, Dr. Craig. And now, Mr. Ali, your second rebuttal for seven minutes, please.
3: Thank you again, Dr. Craig. Now, let's um, look at the Islamic belief on this. True, a lot of traditional Muslim scholars have believed that Jesus was not put on the cross and that somebody else was made to look like him and that person was put on the cross. But I have done some research on this to trace these reports and I have found that none of these reports go back to the Prophet Muhammad himself who is the key figure in explaining the Quran. But there are late reports which obviously were derived by Muslims from their environment as they talked to Christians, scholars among them, and found out what might have been possible as an explanation of the Quranic statement that they neither crucified nor killed Jesus. More than the st- disciples uh, faith uh, based on a mistaken belief? I do not think so. Often we think we know what the disciples were preaching because we go to Acts of the Apostles and we read what they were speaking about soon after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. However, Acts of the Apostles, according to a wide consensus among um, Christians biblical scholars, was written around uh, the year 85 or perhaps even later than that. This would be about 55 years after the event of the crucifixion itself. And so we cannot be confident that somebody memorized the speeches of the apostles and then recorded them in Acts of the Apostles. Instead, we should look at what uh, Harper's Bible Dictionary tells us. That uh, the speeches and acts of the Apostles are, in fact creations of the author of Acts of the Apostles, based on what the author thinks might have been typical of the kinds of speeches that the early Christians would have given. and naturally, this author reflects the beliefs of the later Christians at the time when this was being spoken about. Moreover, it is possible in early times to think of somebody to be dead, whereas in later times we would think that this person might not have been dead. Today we did distinguish between clinical death and brain death. A person who has been clinically dead might actually wake up in a morgue for no apparent reason, just wakes up because he has not been brain dead. Now what kind of death did Jesus actually suffer on the cross? I would try to try and uh, look at, at something of, of that nature. But let's think again about uh, my quotations. Remember, I quoted both uh, Dr. Blumberg and uh, Robert Gundry, who charged Dr. Craig with uh, overstatement. Uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Craig, that's not really what I'm trying to do, but uh, I I only want to uh, let's understand the point and to prune down the statements as uh, Robert Gundry himself has um, uh, proposed. And no, I did not misquote these scholars. The books are here with me. We can quote what exactly they have said. And in fact, both times in response to these scholars, Dr. Craig has has accepted the correction as he stated. Now, what about the appearances of Jesus to the disciples? Could these be harmonized? Now, in fact, the key uh, contradiction that is there is the question of where exactly did Jesus appear to his disciples. I'm not so interested in piddly-riddly contradictions, but we're looking at major questions. Did Jesus appear to his disciples in Galilee or in Jerusalem? Dr. Craig thinks he has the sequence worked out, but as uh, Dr. Raymond Brown has pointed out, uh, this sequence does violence to the Gospel narrative. And he thinks that the more biblical answer is to, is to finally conclude that we cannot in fact work out a sequence based on the materials that we have. And if we are to study these reports and try to find out why we have such contradictions in them, we should conclude that there was only one appearance narrative in the beginning, out of which many narratives uh, blossomed and evolved over time. Now, the origin of the disciples' belief uh, in, in Jesus. Would they have thought that he is just simply a martyr? No. Jesus had performed many miraculous works to prove that he's more than a martyr. Am I picking and choosing when I say that Jesus had predicted his, uh, his uh, resurrection from the dead? No. In fact, Raymond Brown, after studying these reports, thinks that Jesus might have had some awareness that God would finally vindicate him, although the details of how that would happen might not have been fully worked out. And he might, of course, have told his disciples this. And his disciples might have pondered this question if if they had heard Jesus say all of these things. And notice that it is Dr. Craig's responsibility to defend the the Gospels and to prove that the the, the Gospels are historically reliable. As a Muslim, I do not need to defend the Gospels. I put my faith in the Quran as the word of God telling us that God had vindicated Jesus. I turn to the Gospels to understand in what way God might have done that. I look at the Gospels as interpretation that does not need to be sacrosanct and 100% correct. Now, let's think of the crucifixion. What was crucifixion like? As Dr. Raymond Brown points out, crucifixion pierced no vital organ in the victim. And so we must wonder, what really caused his death? In his book, Death of the Messiah, he tries to explore this question. What about the spear thrust into the heart of Jesus? This is reported only in the Gospel according to John, which, according to most scholars, is not the most historically reliable. And even though Raymond Brown thinks that this particular uh, spear thrust is reliable, he doesn't think of it as a spear thrust. But he tells us that the verb that was used there indicates a kind of prodding that would check to see if a person is asleep or he might awaken. So according to Raymond Brown, finally we cannot know from the Gospels what caused the death of Jesus and we must only look at the reports of what generally caused the death of the crucified victim in ancient times. And when we look at these reports we see that a victim might actually survive for three days altogether on the cross. And finally suffer from exhaustion and die. Uh, Dr. Dr. Brown looked at the reports from medical practitioners who tried to look at the Gospel narratives and tried to find out what would have caused Jesus' death, like the hypothermia, for example. And he finally concluded that all of these are fantastic and these medical doctors should have in fact stuck to their trade rather than try to look at the Gospels and think that they understand what the Gospels are speaking about.
1: Thank you, Mr. Ali, and we'll have closing comments now from both of our debaters for a period of five minutes, beginning with Dr. Craig. Well,
2: I've certainly enjoyed our debate this afternoon, and I look forward to the other three that Shabir and I will be having uh, throughout the duration of this week. I hope they're all as good as this one. I've tried to defend five facts tonight that uh, supply the basis for belief in Jesus' resurrection. First, that Jesus uh, was executed by crucifixion. Here, Shabir points out that crucifixion pierced no vital organ, and that only in the Gospel of John do we find the narrative of the spear thrust, which may have been simply a prodding. I want to point out that the idea of uh, ensuring the death of crucified victims by a spear thrust into the heart to make sure the victim was dead is attested in classical sources. For example, Quintilian attests this. So this is not just in the Gospels, this is traditional Roman practice because it wasn't always obvious when the victim was actually dead, but you could ensure it by breaking their legs or by the spear thrust into the side. And Shabir's whole hypothesis tonight depends upon this fantastic view of the apparent death theory that Jesus wasn't really dead when he was taken down from the cross. Secondly, I think we've agreed on the fact of Jesus' burial by Joseph of Arimathea and on the discovery of his empty tomb. We've quibbled about the appearances of Jesus, but I think that basically we agree that the disciples did experience Jesus alive after his death through some sort of an appearance. I don't think that there's anything the matter with the sequence of the appearances that I gave. They don't violate... The text, I don't think, in any significant way. Moreover, I pointed out we have multiple independent attestation of a variety of appearances, and Shabir can't just th- dismiss this by quoting from a single authority. As for the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection, I certainly agree that Jesus may well have had an awareness that God would vindicate him. But notice that this would not come in Jewish thinking through resurrection from the dead. At most. They would have hoped that at the eschaton, at the end of the world, when God raised all the dead, that then Jesus would be vindicated by God in some way. But there was no anticipation of a Messiah who would be shamefully executed and then raised from the dead. You've got to explain what happened to these disciples to explain the origin of the Christian faith and the Christian movement. Now, Shabir suggests that perhaps... uh, they, they didn't all really believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe that's not really what happened. But I think that's quite wrong. Helmut Kresta, who is a very liberal New Testament scholar at Harvard University, points out, and I quote, the creedal formula quoted in First Corinthians 15 that I quoted tonight, uh, defines the gospel as the death, burial, resurrection, and appearances of Christ. This makes it probable that this understanding of the gospel was shared not only by the Church of Antioch from the very beginning, but also by others who are named in the citation of those to whom Jesus appeared. Peter and James. What Paul preached was never the subject of controversy between Paul's Gentile mission and the church in Jerusalem. Jesus' death and resurrection was the event upon which their common proclamation was based. So you've got to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Now I maintain the best explanation is they were telling the truth, that God did raise Jesus from the dead. What Shavir says is that no God allowed him to be crucified, almost killed, and then God raised him to heaven out of the tomb. I suggested, number one, that comes a little bit late. He says, well, it's no later than the resurrection. Well, the resurrection presupposes a death. You can't be raised from the dead unless you die first. But being assumed into heaven doesn't presuppose letting the prophet of God go through the agonies of crucifixion before you finally raise him from the dead. In fact, I submit to you that the Quran actually contradicts Shabir's hypothesis. In the Quran, Surah 4, 157, it says, they did not kill him, neither did they crucify him, but they thought they did. Now, on Shabir's view, they crucified him, but they didn't kill him. And therefore, Shabir's view is incompatible with the Quranic teaching that they did not crucify Jesus of Nazareth. Finally, I said as well that. Uh, It means that God misled the world and the disciples by allowing them to preach the resurrection of Jesus. Even if the Acts speeches are creations, they are nevertheless faithful to what the earliest disciples proclaimed, as we just saw from Helmut Kuster. They proclaimed the resurrection. The Christian movement was founded on belief in the resurrection. And on Shabir's view, you have a theologically unacceptable consequence that God deceived the disciples and the world by making them believe that he had raised Jesus from the dead when in fact he had not. And therefore I find Shabir's quasi-Islamic explanation to be less satisfactory than the belief that God in fact did raise Jesus from the dead. In conclusion, I just want to encourage those of you for whom perhaps this information is new and, and a little overwhelming, pick up the New Testament, begin to read it for yourself. And ask yourself if this couldn't be true. I think you'll find that uh, what I've argued tonight has the ring of truth about it and is, in fact, the truth of what really happened.
1: Thank you, Dr. Craig. And now closing remarks from Mr. Ali for a period of five minutes. Mr. Ali.
3: Thank you again, Dr. Craig. Now, what about um, the five facts that Dr. Craig had put before us? I was not interested in disputing three of them up to the discovery of the empty tomb. But we talked about the appearances. Are the appearances really multiple appearances that Dr. Craig is so confident about? Recall that Dr. Craig told us that this is universally accepted among the Christian biblical scholars. But in fact, I quoted a scholar who is recognized by Dr. Craig as as one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our time, Dr. Raymond Brown. So I cannot be charged with just simply citing just some single authority, I've quoted one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our time. And he tells us that in fact Dr. Craig's sequence does do violence to the Gospel narrative, and uh, I I think that is a firm conclusion. What about the origin of of the faith? of the disciples of Jesus. Naturally, since they lived and walked with Jesus, if we are to take the Gospel evidence as a whole without looking at every little nitty-gritty detail, then we must conclude that Jesus left such a remarkable impact on the lives of His disciples and of uh, people around Him that they would continue to believe in Jesus and they would consider Him to have been innocently crucified, yes, the death of a martyr for sure, and certainly He remains as great a prophet as He has always been. Why would God allow Jesus to suffer the agony? Dr. Craig himself, in disputing with atheists, tells us about the the value of suffering, and why God might permit a, a person to suffer. Certainly by Jesus' suffering, he has actually heightened in his glory before God, because he was willing to suffer so much for the message that he was preaching. That becomes an inspiration for us, that if we know what is true, we should stand up and speak it in the face of any authority, regardless of what they may do to us, even to be willing to face death. So Jesus was willing to even face death for his message, but God promised him that God would rescue him and raise him to himself. How exactly that would have been done was not put before him perhaps if we take Raymond Brown's reconstruction of his predictions. But nevertheless, he had that faith in God, which is an inspiration for us. Now, Dr. Craig challenged me to present one scholar who gave that interpretation of Isaiah 53 that I spoke about. But I've already referred to Craig Blomberg, and in in the book, Will the Real Jesus Stand Up?, which Dr. Craig is definitely familiar with, there are notations about scholars who have given that. What about the prodding of Jesus on, on the cross? Was that really a spear thrust? Notice that Pilate in the first place, under whose auspices Jesus was crucified, did not want Jesus to be crucified. His arm was bent and he was pressured into allowing the crucifixion of Jesus. So if there is any way that Pilate or his soldiers could have made life easier for Jesus, to reduce this punishment, and not bother about his death, and to turn a blind eye if this uh, became uh, possible, then they would definitely have done that. And since we cannot rely on John's Gospel for this fair thrust, or even if we take it as being historical, it was only a prod according to Raymond Brown, then we have no definite information that Jesus actually died on the cross. Dr. Cred was right. One couldn't be certain that the crucified victim was actually dead. And that's what we're left with with in the case of Jesus. So, God rescuing him from being finally killed and going through the entire reign, uh, range of suffering, as in Christian theology, is a better expectation of how God might deal with his righteous servants. Did I misinterpret the Qur'an? No. The Qur'an says, وَمَا قَتَلُوهُ وَمَا صَلَبُوهُ شُبِّهَا لَهُمْ But then the Qur'an continues to say, وَإِنَّ الَّذِينَ فِيهِ لَفِي مِنْهُ مَا لَهُمْ إِلَّا تِبَاعَ الظَّنْ وَمَا The final summation of what the Quran says is in this verse, وَمَا قَتَلُوهُ يَقِينَ They did not definitely kill him. I take this to be the proper interpretation of this verse, and even though some other Muslims might have a different interpretation, which is perhaps arguable also on historical grounds, I would hold that this interpretation has been shown to be a a hypothesis which is uh, a better one than Dr. Craig has put before us. So finally, how can we understand Jesus? When I read the Quran, I saw that what was described about Jesus in the Quran actually made sense of his whole life, his mission, his teachings. Jesus shines as a remarkable figure who raised the dead, who brought uh, the the sick back into into health, a man who was born of a virgin, and whose uh, life can inspire us even today if we read about his life in that book, the glorious Quran. I thank you very much. Thank
1: you, gentlemen, and I think we should uh, offer a round of applause to both of our debaters for a vigorous and yet debate.
0: I'd like you just to once again refer to the comment card that you received at the beginning of the debate. We would like to have you go to the section of after the debate to get your feedback as to your response to the debate and any comments you would like to make. Following that, there's a question that says, I would like to receive more information on this topic from... And You can choose either the Christian um, response or the Muslim response to that. On the Christian side, we will be offering one of Dr. Craig's articles entitled Contemporary Scholarship and the Historical Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I would also like to refer you to the tables that are located outside of the auditorium where you can also obtain various information on both positions. If you do request more information, please leave your name and your number so we can contact you with that. If you do not want further information, then there's no need to leave your name and number. And that would be the conclusion of the questionnaire here. And we will have people in the aisleways collecting them, and so we thank you very much for your feedback on that. And you can just pass them to the aisles as you complete them. Thank you very much.
1: Once you finish that, uh, the microphones are up front here and you can just come down to the front and stand in front of the microphone that you want to ask your question from. question for Dr. Craig. Line up to the, mi- and the microphone in front of Dr. Craig and a question for Mr. Ali. You can line up in- at my left and the microphone in front of him. Okay. Uh, the format of the question and answer period uh, goes like this. Um, if you ask a question of one of the debaters, I'll give you 30 seconds to get your question out. There is no speechifying or uh, offering of your views and opinions. Uh, I want to hear questions. So I'll give you 36 seconds to get the question out, at which point I'll cut you off and I'll interpret what you've said, and I'll, I'll ask the question on your behalf. Uh, the person to whom you ask the question will have two minutes to respond, and then the other debater will have a minute reply. Okay, so we'll start with a question for Mr. Ali, please. Okay, uh, Mr. Ali, you talked about uh, a spear prodding of Jesus, but in the Gospel of John, it talks about fluid being spewn forth from the wound. Now if this was merely a uh, a prodding, how could you explain such a wound? Mm.
3: Okay, now Raymond Brown, who accepts this as a spare prodding, he would take uh, John's uh, description here of uh, fluid gushing out as John's own theolo- the- theological reflection on what this passage could mean. In other words, uh, Raymond Brown is saying that it is not historically true that Jesus' side was so pierced uh, as to allow for this... Uh, Flow of blood and water, but it was uh, John's own reflection on what needed to be proved. Uh, John thinks that uh, uh, it, it, we have to have three witnesses: the, the the spirit and the blood and the water. And here is where we can have the blood and the water from this, uh, which Brown would take as a historical episode of the prodding. That possibly from there we have the gushing forth of the blood and the water. So uh, finally, we do not have here a kind of wound, which Dr. Barbet would would say was. Was a kind of wound that pierced the heart and definitely killed Jesus according to what Brown would explain. Dr. Craig? Well I find it
2: just unbelievable that Shabir would think that Pilate wanted to make life easier for Jesus and so he has these guys just kind of prick his side a little bit with this spear. You remember the reason for the spear thrust was that the Jewish authorities had asked the Roman soldiers to break the legs of the victims so that they would die more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And that's the only reason they didn't break his legs. But to ensure death, they stabbed the spear into his heart, an attested method of ensuring death by crucifixion. And the blood and the water was either a hemorrhagic fluid in the pleural cavity around the lungs, or else in uh, a serum that forms around the heart in the pericardial sac. And these are medically attested, and certainly John saw Theological significance in this, uh, but it doesn't preclude that this was actually uh, medically and historically correct.
1: Okay, question for Mr. Ali, please. Shabir? Oh, yes, sorry, Dr. Crick. Yes, for Dr. Crick.
4: Okay, um, I'm a Christian broadcaster and have had this question raised to me, which I didn't have an adequate answer for. And that is that. Christ states that he is the Son of God, therefore having all the attributes of God, being omnipotent and eternal. Therefore, is it possible that although the incarnation, the body of Christ, was killed, that as God, Christ himself could not have died because as being God, Christ could not have died, and therefore God merely had the entire uh, crucifixion, et cetera, which had been foretold in, in, in prophecy, as... Proof, almost, not to to say this in a a flip way, but almost like an incredible stage show that would then prove the New Covenant that would be effective for all of the members who were meant to come into the New Covenant. Well, I think that
2: what your question raises is the definition of what death is. You see, in one sense, I also survived the death of my body, I believe if you believe in the reality of the soul as as i do i think that when my physical body dies i don't discontinue my existence i'm not annihilated Uh, i i exist in a disembodied state until the the resurrection so by death if we simply mean the separation of the soul from the body then yes jesus of nazareth died on the cross most certainly if you mean that he his consciousness was annihilated well no i don't think that that happened, but that doesn't happen to anybody, I I don't think, when they die. So the the real question is here what you mean by death. Uh, If you accept the traditional understanding of death as the separation of the soul and body, then yes, quite definitely, Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross.
3: Yeah, this question points to the difficulty in understanding who exactly was Jesus. Because if Jesus was completely God and completely man at the same time, then obviously he would have to have something that is extra human in him that would leave him at the time of death. And what would be that thing? If he had two souls, a human soul plus the spirit of God, then he would have, he would have two persons in the one person of Jesus. And that would be a difficult concept to hold. And if Jesus actually died as God, then we would have to ask who was running the world? while he died, and these are the difficulties that people struggle with over time we can avoid these difficulties by understanding that Jesus was a human being and on the cross he did not die Pilate was pressed into having him crucified, but Pilate had a wide range of uh, options on how to treat a crucified victim, including the possibility of sparing him or not having him speared.
1: great, thank you, and a question for Mr. Alina. Um, Yes, Mr.
3: Ali. um, Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but as you previously uh, attested to, the uh, the, uh, apostles perform miracles in the name of Jesus.
1: Is this consistent with uh, other prophets such as Muhammad? And if so, does
3: this not uh, shed light on Jesus' uniqueness? Good. Now, there have been uh, reports about some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad also performing miracles. I should uh, right away say that they are not of the same uh, uh, stupendous sort that are reported in the Gospels themselves. And there is no report that uh, any, uh, at any time the Prophet Muhammad actually drove out demons, or that his companions in his presence actually drove out demons, which is, the, I think, the one main miracle that is reported about again and again in the, in the Gospels. But a lot of the miracles that are reported in the Gospels about the disciples and the acts of the apostles regarding their their miracles are in fact uh, regarded by biblical scholars to be later legendary developments and um, such uh, later legendary developments did not develop in the case of the Prophet Muhammad but perhaps one of the reasons for this is that Jesus was known, as is known from the Quran to have been a mighty miracle worker, he was born of a virgin, he performed many miraculous deeds and uh, the the fact is that once Jesus was known to have performed all of these he would have left such an impact uh, among his following uh, that uh, people would have thought it possible to also perform this kind of, of deed also in his name And the Gospels report that uh, people were already performing miracles in His name. Now my point is not so much that all of these reports are historically true. But I'm saying that if we take Dr. Craig's hypothesis, we have to regard all of these as false. We have to say that Jesus made no impact on His following. Nobody knew Him to be a miracle worker. All of these are later legends. And that when Jesus was crucified, every hope and belief in Him would have been killed by the cross. Once we take that as historians do, then, in fact, we have to negate all of the Gospels. And, in fact, then we're not making a Christian defense of Jesus, we're making some other defense. Dr. Craig? Well, it's incorrect to say that Jesus' miracles
2: are regarded as legendary by the majority of critics today. Quite the contrary. In fact, Luke Johnson, who I quoted in my speech, says in his book, and I quote, even the most critical historian can confidently assert that a Jew named Jesus worked as a teacher and wonder worker in Palestine during the reign of Tiberius, was executed by crucifixion, and continued to have followers after his death. That's simply on the basis of extra-biblical evidence. When you look at the biblical evidence, Graham 12.3 in his recent book on Jesus and Miracles, says there is hardly any aspect of the life of the historical Jesus which is so well and widely attested as that he conducted deeds which those around him deemed to be unparalleled wonders were bound to conclude miracles dominated and were the most important aspect of his whole pre-Easter ministry. So Jesus was a famed miracle worker, but of course that doesn't provide any anticipation of his resurrection from the dead. That's the issue that I was raising in my fourth point.
1: Okay, a question for Dr. Craig, please. Yes, I have a question concerning
3: the historicity of the biblical record. Um, Basically, how can one gauge the plausibility of of the record of Christ's resurrection in light of probable bias on the part of the biblical sources? There is undoubtedly uh, emotional vested interest in the accuracy of the account. Um, Added to this is the fact that there is a marked lack of indifferent extra-biblical sources to ratify the biblical account.
2: Yeah, well, I I want to disagree with that last statement. I mean, you heard the statement I just read from Luke Johnson about what you can establish about Jesus simply from extra-biblical sources. But what critical scholars do is they take this into account. Of course, the the question of theological bias or, or, or interest comes into play. And so they use various criteria. One of them that I've appealed to frequently tonight is the criterion of multiple independent attestation. When you have an event or saying of Jesus which has an early source for it and an independent source for it, then it is more likely to be historical because it's unlikely that these two independent sources would make up the same event or saying. So when you have multiple independent attestation, that increases the historical credibility of the event. Another criterion would be uh, the criterion of embarrassment. Events which are awkward or embarrassing are less likely to be made up by the early church and are more apt to be historical. Remember, I used that criterion in arguing that it was probably women who discovered the tomb empty. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion and death is a criterion of authenticity in the sense that this is so firmly anchored in history that views about the person and work of Jesus can be assessed in terms of their likelihood to have led to his crucifixion and death and so on and so forth. In in John Meyer's book, uh, A Marginal Jew, he lists about eight to ten of these different criteria that historians use in researching the New Testament narratives with a view toward trying to reconstruct who the historical Jesus actually was. So the problem that you mentioned is a well-known one. Really, it afflicts all of the study of ancient history, because all ancient historians wrote from a bias. They were all trying to prove their point of view. And you just have to do your best to to try to get to the historical core of these narratives using these criteria.
3: Mr. Uh, This uh, recalls the point I made about Acts of the Apostles. This document would naturally report on what was believed at the time when it was written. And when we study it, we have to find out, is there a core element here that is actually true and is original and historical. Look for example at the preaching of the early disciples. Naturally, they said that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what was believed at the time of the writer. But notice that they also quoted Psalm 16 to justify their position. But according to the interpreters one volume commentary on the Bible, in this this Psalm, no doctrine of resurrection is involved. After a close brush with death, the poet rejoices in a sound heart and soul and body. And exalts because the Lord has given him life, showed him how to live, and crowned it with joy and endless delight. The Interpreter's one volume commentary on the Bible, page number 266. Moreover, it says here that the psalmist has set his heart on... Y- well, that's all the time I have. Well, time's getting away
1: from us with four minutes left. So one, one question more, uh, this time for Dr. Ali. And what was
3: the response from Dr. Craig? Hi, I'm Mr. Ali. I'm an old friend of yours, Tony Costa. We've debated a number of times. Uh, so, hello. <laughs> uh, just a very quick question. I was I was actually quite amazed uh, tonight listening to your position on the on the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, because historically my understanding has always been that, uh, and the position of the Sunni Islam is that Jesus was not crucified. Period, and that your view seems to coincide more with the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. And my question is, have you? gone Ahmadiyya on me are you still Sunni? <laughs>
4: right.
3: mm. Now the, the Ahmadiyya are a group that emerged in India um, following a leader who said that he was the second coming of Jesus and to justify that position, he had to say that Jesus actually was uh, killed and that he is buried. And in fact, he held the belief that Jesus survived the cross, he walked all his way to Kashmir in India, and that's where he is buried. So whereas Sunni Muslims believe that Jesus would be coming again a second time on the authority of many authentic reports uh, back to the Prophet Muhammad, reported in the authentic collections like Bukhari and Muslim and so on, the Ahmadiyya group believes that Jesus will not come again because he has actually already returned in the person of uh, the founder of that group. I believe that Jesus will be coming again. Now our um, positions seem to intersect on on the point of Jesus surviving death on the cross. I've looked at the reports that are generally followed by Sunni Muslims, uh, understanding that someone else was substituted for Jesus on the cross. And I've seen that although there are a variety of reports, the commentators cannot agree precisely on what has happened here and how exactly a substitute was given. And uh, it appears that they are following reports which originated in Iraq according to an, an excellent analysis done by Neil Robinson who is now a Muslim in his book Christ in Islam and Christianity and uh, looking at the Quranic text itself which is the best interpretation of itself we see that the the Quranic text uh, ends with a summary which says did not kill him definitely but God raised him to himself I take this to be a summary of the whole discussion on what has happened to Jesus there was a plot to kill him but they neither killed him nor crucified him Crucified him in the sense of killing him by crucifixion that is a definition that has been given in Tafsir Al-Quran by Abdul Majid Daribadi, which is a that's here on, on the Quran so I'm well within my, my ranks and I haven't changed positions on that but perhaps interpretations
2: well I find this to be a highly implausible interpretation of these Quranic verses it's true that uh, in the summary it says they did not slay him for certain God lifted him up to him God is mighty and wise but what that's summarizing is the earlier statement they did not kill him nor did they crucify him but they thought they did. And on Shabir's view, he was crucified. I don't see how you can get around it. It's true he wasn't slain, but he was crucified. And uh, it seems to me that if you're going to use this sort of ad hoc conjecture that God allowed him to be crucified, but he was taken down alive and then raised into heaven, that you really do have this theological problem that it turns Allah into a deceiver. He deceived the disciples into thinking that he had raised Jesus from the dead, when it would have been much easier for Allah simply to have done what most Muslims believe he did, namely prevented the crucifixion altogether and raised him immediately to heaven.
1: Okay, thank you, gentlemen. And with a couple of closing remarks, I'll turn us back over to the MC.
0: we'd once again like to extend a special thank you to Dr. Craig and to Mr. Ali for the debate. And a special thank you also to Richard Davis for moderating this event. And just in conclusion, this is a one debate in a four-part series that Dr. Craig and Mr. Ali will be having. And so I'd just like to detail some other debates that will be coming up To get an overview of the debate series, tonight between 10 to 11 p.m., Dr. Craig and Mr. Ali will appear on the Michael Corrine live TV show on Vision Television, and they will briefly outline their debate topics on TV. Uh, Tomorrow, Tuesday, March 5th, there will be a debate at York University at 7 p.m. in the Computer Science Building, Lecture Hall C, and the topic will be, What Must I Do to Be Saved? On Wednesday, March 6th, they will be having a debate at McMaster University at 3.30 p.m. in TSH 120 on the concept of God in Islam and Christianity. And their last debate in this four-part series is on Thursday, March 7th. It's a debate at University of Western Ontario at 7 p.m. in IVIR 40 on who is the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Koran or the Jesus of the Bible. So this time, we'd like to extend a special thank you for you to come to this event. And we wish you all a very good evening. Thank you again.